Well, it's great to be with you today and it's my privilege to speak. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Mark uh, chapter 11. Uh, If you haven't, don't worry, it's all going to come up on the screen. And today we're going to look at the story of Jesus's entry into Jerusalem as we kind of lead into this Easter week. And obviously as a as a church, as a kind of church family, we're going to be marking that. We've got the moments where we're going to be remembering and thinking back over this last year and just really kind of considering the loss and the difficulty that many of us have walked through. We're obviously going to be marking Good Friday and then obviously next Sunday, Easter Sunday. Uh, But today we're looking at this story of Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. And um, this is one of those stories which if you've been around church tour, even if you haven't, you may well kind of be familiar with this. This is the kind of story that when I grew up, I went to Sunday school, we would have talked about, I think we probably even acted it out in Sunday school. That were probably my favorite bits. Um, but sometimes the problem with a really familiar passage is it's really easy to miss maybe new things that God wants to say to us through it. So just before we jump in, I'm going to pray And I'd love to encourage you to pray with me that as we look at this together today, we sense God speak to us uh, through his word. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the passage we're about to consider and look at. And thank you that you say your word is living and active. And so, God, we want to ask you, we pray, let it be living and active right now. Speak to us. Say the things you want us to hear speak to our hearts. I want to pray, speak to my heart. And so that we might hear your voice and know your truth. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Mark chapter 11, and this is uh, what it says. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage and Bethany at, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? You say the Lord needs it and it will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing? Untying that colt. And they answered as Jesus had told them and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Now, in one sense, this passage is familiar, but it's kind of confusing when you think about it because on one level, you read this passage and you think everything looks good. It looks promising. Everyone is here. The crowds are kind of swelling in Jerusalem. They're excited. People are welcoming Jesus. It looks good. But as we know, as we think ahead to this next week and what we're going to look at, On Friday, especially, within a few days, everything changes. Before you know it, the crowds who are shouting Hosanna, which basically means save us, are very quickly shouting, kill him, give us Barabbas instead. It turns so fast. And it's confusing because you look at it and go, how does that happen? How does it go from 
how does it go from this moment where people are shouting and welcoming and seemingly absolutely on board with Jesus to a few days later shouting for him to be crucified and for somebody else to be released? How does that happen? Well, I guess I want to just approach that by saying, well, I think what the crowds do here is they get one thing right and they get one thing or something very wrong. And as we look at the story, we consider the crowd's response. What we're going to see is their response can be mirrored in our response. We can mirror them. We can, we can repeat. The passage, if you like, presents us with an opportunity to see Jesus for who he is and to respond accordingly. But it also has, if you like, an inherent warning within it that it is possible to miss who he is and live in such a way that we don't recognize him for who he actually is. So let's start by just looking at what do they do right? What do they get right? Well, what they get right is this. The crowds realize they need an answer. They are at a point where they realize something in their, in their nation, in their circumstances is wrong, which they cannot fix, and they need someone to come and change things. And that's why they start to look to Jesus, and they're starting to shout, Hosanna, and that's often how our spiritual walk starts. It starts by acknowledging there is something wrong with my life. Something wrong, there's something missing, there's something that I don't seem to be able to fix. Whatever I do doesn't appear to kind of deliver the sense of contentment and fulfillment that my soul craves. And we acknowledge that whatever I'm doing here, it just doesn't seem to be working right. Something wrong with my life and I can't fix it. Bernard Levin, who was a famous secular writer, wrote these words once, famously wrote these words, countries like ours are full of people who have all the material comforts they desire and yet lead lives of quiet and at times noisy desperation, understanding nothing but the fact that there is a hole inside of them and that however much food and drink they pour into it, however many motor cars and television sets they stuff it with, however many well-balanced children and loyal friends they parade around the edges of it, it aches. So in one sense, the crowds get it right. They, they realize there is something about their own condition and about the, the circumstances, particularly of their nation, which they cannot solve and they are desperate for an answer for. And they look to Jesus and they think, well, maybe this guy is the guy who can solve it for us. They get that bit right. But as a problem because they also get something else very wrong. You see, the Jewish people wanted a revolution. They think their biggest problem is that their country is occupied by the Romans. They're under occupation and they want a king. They want to go back to the days of David. They want a king to rise up, to arm them militarily and lead them to victory and kick out the Romans. That's what they want. And that's what all the shouting is about. So all the shouting, all the hosannas, they're basically royal words. In fact, if you kind of look into this passage, what you realize is they, they're quoting something from the Old Testament. They're quoting words from Psalm 118, which basically Psalm 118 says this, Hosanna, Lord save us, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they quote Psalm 118. It's like a royal shout, a royal accolade, a royal welcome to a king. But then, interestingly, they then misquote Psalm 118 or they change Psalm 118 because in the next line in that Psalm, it says, from the house of the Lord, we bless you. 
But that's not what the crowds say. What the crowds say is, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. In other words, blessed is the one, blessed is this king who's going to come. The, what they're saying is basically, we've got a king who's coming who we want to we want him to rise up and overthrow Pilate, overthrow Herod, and kick out Caesar and the Romans. That's why they're shouting those words. This isn't just a parade. This is like a royal welcome. That's why they throw their cloaks down on the floor. We think of that, or maybe that's just a cultural thing, but actually what's going on there, again, in the Old Testament, that was a sign of when a king was crowned, if you read in 2 Kings 9, when a king is crowned, they put their cloaks on the floor. And that's why they wave palm branches. We read that and we think of, you know, this is what I acted out at Sunday school. You'd wave something in the air like it's a nice parade. But that's not what's going on in this story. They wave palm branches because they were a powerful political symbol for the Jews. If you've ever watched... Um, or read the Hunger Games books, you will know in that story that there's a revolution that starts and there's a symbol of the Mockingjay that becomes the kind of main symbol for the revolution. It's a, they put their, the people put their fingers in the air and they whistle the sound of the Mockingjay and it becomes a symbol of defiance against the capital. Well, the waving the palm branches is also a symbol of defiance. So about 100, or it's about 200 years before Jesus, there was a, a, a revolt led by a guy called Judas Maccabeus, who defeated the Syrian king, um, basically entered Jerusalem, kicked them out, uh, reclaimed the temple, rebuilt the temple, and rededicated the temple. And when that happened, guess what they waved? They waved palm branches. It's also uh, the first moment in history recorded where the people danced the Macarena, apparently. That's not true. I'm just checking that you're staying with me. That's the Maccabean revolt, and they use palm branches. It's, a, it's not like waving flags at parade. It's an act of defiance. It's a declaration, effectively, of war. So the crowd welcome Jesus, but they don't recognize who he is. And that's where the warning is for us, because we can be like the crowds, we can welcome him, but not recognize him. And when we don't recognize him for who he is, we don't respond appropriately to him. Uh, years and years ago, about 30 years ago, after university, I uh, went and worked in a school in India and, uh, for about six months. And when I was there, I, I don't quite know how this all happened, but we, I, I somehow got to know a group of local musicians who worked in... One of the gigs they did was in a local hotel... They were like a kind of, uh, you know, a band that did Western songs. And I got to, I think I was there one evening somehow, and I met them, and I ended up jamming with them. And then from that point on, every so often, they would invite me to go and play music with them, which was all quite fun. So I, I basically borrowed someone's saxophone, and I used to go and gig with them every so often in this hotel. Um, and I think I got a meal out of it each time, which is all very nice. So that was all quite fun. But one evening, I remember, I was at this hotel, and... There were some guests there that we chatted to for a bit and then the evening moved on. But after chatting to these people, there were quite a few people hanging around watching, which seemed a bit odd to me at the time. One of the guys in the band said to me, do you, do you know who they were? And I'm like, i got no idea who they were. I don't know. I just thought they were some guests in the hotel. He said, no, 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 no. They're really famous Bollywood stars. And obviously in India, Bollywood especially is huge so they are massive, massive stars. And I just thought they were some 
some people who just happened to be hanging out in the, in the hotel. I, I kind of said hi to them, but I didn't really give them much attention at all because I didn't recognize them. If I'd recognized them or known who they were, I would have been a bit more attentive to them, but I just didn't recognize them. And the crowds do not recognize who Jesus is. They welcome him, but they don't recognize him. See, we can realize that our lives don't really work and we can't fix them and that we need an answer from beyond ourselves, some kind of savior. And just like the crowds, we can look towards Jesus that maybe this guy could be the answer. But just like the crowds, if we don't recognize him for who he really is, we can miss it. See, the crowds want a savior, but they want a savior, if you like, made in their own image. In other words, they want a Jesus or a savior or a king who will simply do what they want him to do. They want one that they conjure in their own imagination who can come and help them sort out the circumstances of their life. They want a helper who has power. They don't necessarily want a Messiah who's going to save them properly and fully. And ultimately, the crowd's problem is this. They don't really understand who Jesus is. That's why you get later in the passage, people in the city saying, it's all stirred up, Mark says, but people are saying, who is this guy? And crucially, they also don't really understand what their deepest need really is. But interestingly, when you read this story and you really read it and look into it, what you realize is Jesus is answering both of those questions. You see, just like, just as the crowds are making a statement when they shout Hosanna or they put their cloaks down or they raise they wave these palm branches and they're, they're making a statement. Jesus is also making a statement. We don't necessarily pick it like initially with our own kind of cultural eyes, but he's making a statement in terms of what he does and when he does what he does in this passage. I don't know if you've ever wondered why Jesus rides in on a donkey. For example, why doesn't he ride on a horse or a camel? Or why doesn't he just walk in like everybody else? Well, he picks a donkey because in the Old Testament, in Zechariah, there's a prophetic word about the Messiah riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah 9, verse 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal, of a donkey, on a young donkey. So Jesus is enacting a messianic prophetic promise. He's intentionally, if you like, embodying a promise. And all the Jews would have known that scripture. They would have understood that this was a prophetic promise about the Messiah to come, the king who would come and save his people. And Jesus is making a statement. He's saying, that's who I am. That's who I am. I am the fulfillment of those prophetic promises. I am the king I am the one you need. I am the saviour come to free my people. He's making a statement. But the truth is, while he's making a statement that he is the king, he's not a king that they are expecting. He doesn't come to take up arms, but he comes down to lay down his life, as we will consider in these next few days. You see, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a very specific day. Jesus rides into Jerusalem right at the beginning of Passover. Now, Passover was a Jewish festival that the Jews celebrated every year. 
and dated back hundreds of years back to the time of the Exodus when the people of Israel were held in slavery and captivity in Egypt. And God raises up Moses to get his people out of slavery into a promised land, into a whole new era. And to get the people out, he sends, God sends a series of plagues upon Egypt to try and get Pharaoh to relinquish his grip and allow the people to go. And the plagues, you know, each time Pharaoh just won't let them go. And eventually God says to Moses, you need to go and tell Pharaoh that judgment is going to come on Egypt. And uh, that night I'm going to pass through Egypt and the firstborn son of every family will die. But tell my people to get a lamb, to get a perfect one-year-old male lamb with no defect, kill it, cook it, eat it, and take the blood of the lamb and put it over the doorposts of your houses. And when I pass through in judgment in Egypt, wherever I see the sign of the blood over the doorposts, I will pass over those houses and there will be no judgment and no death that comes upon that house. The sign of the blood, if you like, will be the sign that I will pass over and not bring any judgment. And that is exactly what happens in the story. God, God does that. Pharaoh allows Israel to go and they get out. And ever since that moment, the Jewish people have celebrated Passover. And they were told to celebrate it every year. On the 10th day of the first month, they were to select a Passover lamb. They should look after it, care for it for four days. And then if you like, in the evening or the twilight of the 14th day of the first month, the lamb should be sacrificed. Jesus enters Jerusalem on the 10th day of the first month. On the day that every household would select their lamb for the Passover. In other words, Jesus enters on the lamb selection day. Jesus is making a statement. He's saying, I'm the king, but I am the Passover lamb. That's who I am. You see, Jesus is the king they are waiting for, but he is not the Messiah they expected. They welcome him, but they don't recognize him. And they did not understand their deepest problem. They think their deepest problem uh, was about the Romans. But you see, their deepest problem was not the Romans, not the kingdom or the land. It wasn't about externals and circumstances. Their deepest problem is our deepest problem as well not ultimately about the condition of our circumstances, but about the condition of our hearts, that our lives are infected by sin. And although we were made to know God, we can't have a relationship with him because we fall short of God. And we can't do anything about it just by ourselves. So whilst we may need a very radical change of circumstances and God may bring that, fundamentally, ultimately, we need someone who will save us from ourselves and liberate us, yes, but from our sinfulness, not necessarily our circumstances. And as we enter Easter week, we have an opportunity, if you like, to respond to Jesus, to welcome Jesus, to recognise him, to respond to him in a way that the crowds were not able to. You may know this, but right at the start of Jesus' earthly ministry in Luke 4, Uh, there's a story of him entering a synagogue and he picks up a scroll and reads a passage from Isaiah. He reads a passage uh, from Isaiah 61 and it's these words. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And then he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That would have been an incredible moment to be there where Jesus goes, this day, this is being fulfilled. Now, if you know that passage in Isaiah, you'll know that that passage in Isaiah actually goes on to say, to proclaim not only the day of the year of the Lord's favour, but the day of his vengeance. In other words, a day of judgment. But Jesus doesn't read that in Luke 4. He stops short of saying that in Luke 4. Now, why does he do that? Well, scholars believe he does that because Jesus is saying, I'm about to inaugurate a season of liberation, a season of forgiveness, of freedom, of mercy, the opportunity to respond, to come home. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. He will come riding on a donkey to lay his life down so we can come home. Jesus is inaugurating a season of forgiveness and freedom and mercy where we can respond to him. But there will be a day one day when he comes in victory, rather than on a donkey, he comes on riding on a horse. Revelation 19 talks about Jesus coming riding on a white horse. And that day, he will judge the earth the day, if you like, of vengeance that Isaiah speaks of, when every knee will bow and every person will acknowledge and recognise him. You and I have an opportunity to recognise and respond to him willingly in this week, today and this week coming. Four days after Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, on the 14th day of the month, Jesus celebrates Passover with his disciples. He breaks bread. He says, this is my body broken for you. He pours out the wine. He says, this is my blood poured out for you. Jesus is saying now, absolutely explicitly, I am the Passover lamb. I will lay down my life. Through me, every sacrifice is fulfilled. I am the sacrifice, if you like, to end all sacrifices. And what had happened centuries before with people being freed out of physical slavery, out of a physical country, now is about to be made into a far greater reality. Jesus is saying to them, through my sacrifice, the penalty the judgment, the sin will be paid for and the power of sin, the slavery of sin, the addiction, all those unhealthy habits, the power of that stuff is about to be broken as well. The penalty and the power is about to be dealt with. In other words, Jesus said, I'm going to get you out, out of slavery, out of bondage, out of captivity, into a new life, a new person, a new hope. That is what Jesus is doing in this passage. And it's what Jesus is still doing today. It's what Jesus invites us into today and this week. We have an opportunity this week to willingly respond to him. I want to just encourage you, don't miss the moment. As we consider his entrance, as we consider him laying down his life, as we consider the cross, as we consider the resurrection of Jesus, don't miss the opportunity to respond to welcome him fully. 
to recognise him completely, to acknowledge humbly, absolutely our need of him. And don't miss the opportunity to surrender to him joyfully and fully. Let's pray together right now. Father, thank you so much for the incredible grace of God towards us, that you don't leave us as we are, that you sent your son to rescue us and redeem us and get us out of slavery, that we have this incredible opportunity to respond to your extraordinary invite to us, to to know you, to be forgiven, to be adopted, to walk with you closely, And I just want to pray for everybody today that we might be open to what you're saying to us and this word would not return empty in our hearts. You would do something in our hearts. In whatever circumstance or season we are, whether we're somebody who's a Christian and been a Christian for years or whether we're somebody who's just investigating, I pray, Lord Jesus, by your spirit, you would accomplish what you want to accomplish. And God, for your glory, you would bring fruit from this word in our lives. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.